Turn to Psalm chapter 4. Psalm 4. The Psalms are full of prayers to God for relief, for rescue, for redemption from our enemies. And enemies are central to Psalm 4 too. (coughs) Excuse me. However, the struggles that the psalmist faces here are deeper than simply having enemies. And David is distressed. It doesn't say what he is distressed about, but his distress does include people viewing the good things about him as bad. Have you guys ever had this happen where something that is good about you is condemned by others? It's a very distressing thing. Because it calls into question your entire view of reality. When good is called evil, the the Bible condemns that, right? And there's a reason that it's such a serious thing. When, When good is called evil and when evil is called good, it's a turning upside down of the entire world. It's a denial that God is good, It's a declaration that man is good. It it switches black to white. It switches red to green. It changes the entire world. And if you're walking through the world knowing that good is good and that bad is bad, and all of a sudden somebody says, actually, you've got bad and good reversed, either you're crazy or they're crazy, either you're wicked or they're wicked, Right? Everything is, everything is up for grabs at that point if you begin to wonder which is what. And so David is distressed. <clears throat> His honor has somehow become a reproach. Well, honor and reproach are the opposite of each other. See, everything becomes tipsy-turvy, upside-down, Have you guys ever been on a roller coaster where uh, it goes upside down? Everybody? I mean, Kings Island's right around the corner, so most everybody has anyway. Have you ever seen pictures of a roller coaster where it's stuck? Have you ever thought about a roller coaster getting stuck upside down on one of those curves? Not a pleasant thought, at least not to me. I assume it's not a pleasant thought to any of you either. The whole point is that you're supposed to be upside down just for a little bit, right? Just long enough to get you really scared so that the world can be righted again and you can have that rush of relief when you realize, oh, we're going to be right side up and everything's going to be okay. It's distressing and we, we're entertained by that level of very small distress. But when, when not just you're upside down and hanging from the contraption 30 or 50 feet in the air, but the whole world is declared to be upside down, what's good about you is declared to be bad, what's bad about you is declared to be good, it, this is really problematic, truly distressing. 
And this is what happens to David. We all face distress in our life. And so, listen as David teaches us how to deal with distress. That's not the only kind of distress, right? But it's, it's one of those things that's probably a little bit easier for us to relate to than just having enemies. Because how many of you today really feel like you have an enemy? We got a little three-year-old who has an enemy. That's rough life, yeah. Please stand for the reading of God's word from Psalm 4. For the choir director on stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? Selah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Selah. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. Many are saying, who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. You have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I remembered the other thing that I was going to say to you before while I was giving announcements, and that's just how happy I am to be back and to see all of you and to be able to preach again. Paul was also stating that he was happy that I was going to preach again. Thank you, Paul. One of the reasons that it's always such a delight to come back and to be here is because every time that we're gone for a Sunday, uh, whether we go to a good church or to a bad church, and and this time I'll have to say that we went to a bad church, um, it's always a reminder of the good gifts that God has given us here. One of the things that we have difficulty, I think, connecting with in the Psalms is this idea of enemies. And as the, as the years have gone by in my work in the ministry, it's become easier for me to associate with the psalmists as they speak of people attacking them, as they speak of enemies. But it's still something that we have, uh, I think, more difficulty 
really connecting with, really seeing ourselves in the Psalms in general. Um, but when you see when you see the beauty of the church of Jesus Christ gathered together, when you see the love that the saints have for one another, you realize how totally opposite the world is in that respect. I've had several things the last few weeks where I've realized how different the world is from the church. And it really begins to, you you really begin to understand why there is actual enmity between the two. That, That the Bible speaks of the gates of hell not prevailing against the militant church, right? There is this battle that's going on. To give you one example, um, the uh, I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago the grandfather clock that's in my family. And my dad had sent some information about it out to the extended family and uh, how long it had been in the family. And it goes back, you know, the mechanism, I guess, was made in England in the Revolutionary War era. And so it's this really neat thing. And my, uh, my brother sent an email saying, um, what a wonderful gift our godly heritage is. And, and one person in the family wrote back what I immediately thought, which is, what in the world does us having a grandfather clock in our family have anything to do with a godly heritage? You understand, like, there's nothing godly about a clock. There's nothing holy about a clock. There's nothing really even religiously special about a clock. Right? In any, what, what's the connection? And the more I thought about it, the more I realized watching the world and seeing that there is, that, that there is often nothing passed down. There, there's nothing left over. There, there is no heritage at all. Do you understand what I'm saying? The, just, just the fact that it hasn't been chopped up like the baby that Solomon said, you know, cut it in half and, and give each of them a half so that they'll stop fighting over it. Just that that hasn't happened is a testimony to the difference between the Christian life, and the life of the world. So just one little example where you've just got such this clear distinction, this, this, this black and white sort of world where there's such a difference between God's people and those who are his enemies. It plays out in many, many ways. And so I come back here and I see all of you and it's just such a joy to be here, to, see, to be able to preach, to see you receiving the word of truth with open hearts and joy when I say things that I can't imagine being said in most churches. It's such a sweet, sweet thing to me.
So coming back to the text here, David has enemies. But in this case, we don't know what's going on when he's talking about his distress. And, and in fact, in most of the Psalms, we don't really know when there's distresses when, when, that are mentioned. We don't really know what their cause is. Occasionally, you're told in the introduction to the Psalm what's going on, uh, when it was written. <clears throat> but most of the time, you're just left with the text, maybe who wrote it, and maybe what instruments, it's, whether it's supposed to be sung or not, and, and what instruments it's supposed to be played with. Um, regardless of what's going on, David is distressed. And we are often distressed. Set aside enemies for a second. Set aside this, this crazy enmity of the world, and just think about the distresses that come in your life when people sin against you, it can be very distressing. When the consequences of your own sin land on you, it can produce great distress. Sometimes our distress is caused simply by our own fear of the future. Worry can distress us. Physical suffering and sickness can be very distressing to us. Emotional pain, broken relationships, these are distressing. Even simply the lack of sleep that some of you face at various times is distressing, right? And so we have many, many examples of distress. You don't have to have somebody who's trying to kill you like David did in order to understand that he is distressed. And even three-year-olds can be very distressed, even though we laugh often at what they are distressed by, the silliness of the things that they're distressed by. So the Lord looks at us and laughs, I think, when we're distressed by such silly things. He knows that he is providing for us. He knows his promises. He has told us that he's providing for us. He's told us his promises. And then we get distressed because we don't believe them, because... You know, we're, we're worried about whether we're going to be able to finish our sucker, right? This is what the, the three-year-old gets distressed by. Oh, no, 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 no. This, that's what we do. And yet, it's real distress, isn't it? I remember when I was in fifth grade that I was distressed, sleepless, crying through the nights. Why? Well, I don't really remember, except that I didn't have friends. It was, it was distressing. I was distressed. David is distressed. And what does he do when he's distressed? He cries out to God. And whether you're three 
five or fifth grade or 50, when you are distressed, this is what you should do. This is what you must do. Cry out to God. Turn to Him. Run to Him as David does. He prays. He cries out. He calls to God. And he doesn't stop. He doesn't allow his distress and fear to keep him from turning to God. He uses it as a goad to drive him to God rather than away from God. And those are really the only two options that you face when you are in distress. You can run to God or you can run away from God. Right at that moment of decision, you know what I'm talking about, where you've got you to decide whether you're going to go to God with your distress or whether you think, you know what, I'm just angry at God for making me distressed. Or whether you have to decide whether you believe that he is good and that his plans for you are for a hope and a future, or whether you're just going to believe the lies of Satan, that actually God doesn't care about you, that actually he's just out to get you. David uses the distress as a goad driving him to his heavenly father. So often we believe that lie from Satan that God is against us. His own people. God against his own people. Don't be absurd. (laughs) Don't be absurd. Why? How could God be against his own people. And you say, well, what about what we just read? Moses threw down the Ten Commandments. They shattered because why? Well, because the law had been broken, utterly broken. And what did God say? He said, I'm going to turn away from the people that I chose and make a, a new nation out of you, Moses. So because of my sin, that's why God is against me. Right? And if you're going to make a case for why God would be against you, you couldn't make a better case. And this is why Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He is the accuser of God's people. And he's always right. Partly. Right? He's always right when he points out your sin. He's always right when he points out your faithlessness. He's always right. And he's always lying to you about God. Because God will never abandon his people. He will not allow his Holy One to undergo decay. He will not turn aside from his promises, from his plans. And so it's not dangerous 
to trust God. It's not, it's not dangerous to receive good gifts from him, to receive blessings. It's not foolish to put your hope in him and in his blessings and in his promises. It's the only reasonable thing to do to turn to him when you face distress. We'll come back to this as we get to the end of the psalm. To this lie from Satan that God is against his people. Now the question that it brings up is, are you one of his people? Right? That's the fundamental first question that has to be answered because if you're not one of his people, then all of Satan's claims that God is against you are true. But remember, one of his goals is to try to convince God's people that they aren't his people. So we're in this, we're in this weird place where the church struggles. There's these, there's these theological battles that, that attend this, but on the one hand, you've got people saying, uh, look, you must examine yourself to see whether you are of the faith. And this is the, the Puritan heritage, right? And on the other hand, you've got people today saying, yeah, but the covenant is objective. The covenant of God is a promise that you can place your faith in. It is, it's, it's true. It's there. God's people. Right? And so you can believe it, and, and you shouldn't be doubting your faith. You shouldn't be questioning your faith. And both of those things are true. And both of them are all over the place in the Bible. And we see both of them here in this psalm. David turns to God and then he says, tremble and do not sin. Both of those are brought together into the same, not just you know, way over here at the end, of, you know, you've got the one and, and early on you've got the other in the Bible. No, right here in this short psalm, eight verses, you've got both of those things brought together. And so, yes, Satan is great at being the accuser. Satan is very good at lying. Satan is very good at taking what your tendencies are and then twisting them. Even the, the best things about you, he's, his goal is to make them into dishonor, right? Satan's lies are false. You can and you must turn to God. You must believe that his plans for you are for a hope and a future. And then you must put your faith in him. 
because he is opposed to the unrighteous. He is pouring out his wrath and his judgment on sin, on his enemies. So don't be his enemy. Don't be his enemy. Put your faith in him. Satan's lies also extend, like I was just saying, to attacking our righteousness. Even trying to take what is good about us and twist it and make it bad. And this is a place where I think that we can begin to understand, we can begin to see how the world is at enmity with us, not just with God. We can begin to see it, how, how we are being attacked. <clears throat> the promises of God that you believe if you are one of his sons, if you're a child of God, you take his promises, you hold them for yourself, you believe them to be true, and then what does the world say about them? The world says they are ridiculous, the world says that they're evil, the world says all kinds of things to try to destroy your faith. So God says that children are a blessing, and the world shames you for believing it, right? It doesn't have to be that there's some one person that is out to get you. You simply living in the world, but not being of it, is enough for all of the pressures against God's promises to come down and rest on your shoulders. It takes courage to take hold of and to hold fast to God's gracious promises, especially when the world mocks you for believing them. But when you believe the promises of God, that is your honor. Do you understand? That is the good in you. When you take action because you believe that what God has said is true, your life bears the fruit and it bears witness to what you have put your faith in. That's honorable. It's a sweet sacrifice to God. It's living in righteousness. And that is exactly what the world then says is disgusting about you. That's, that's exactly where the world then says, and what Satan is trying to convince you of, that that one thing that you've done by faith, holding on to his word and believing it as true, you do that one thing and the world says, that's ridiculous. Black is white. Wrong is right.
But your honor is honor, no matter what the world says. And so you, <clears throat> you read what the Bible says about being a man, about being a woman, about what you were made for, about the, the relationship between a husband and a wife, and, and you pursue that. And the world mocks you and says that you're throwing away your life, that you're losing the best years of your life, the, 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 uh, and, and this goes for men and women, right? That you need to take advantage of fill in the blank and, and, and stop sacrificing you need to stop living by faith. You need to stop having the honor of obedience. Because actually, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous for you to give up the pleasures of this life. It's ridiculous for you to give up seeking after your, the, the desires of your flesh, and the lust of the eyes. This is what the world says. It says, your honor is your shame. And of course, the best way to respond to that is, then I glory in my shame. You know, you see what you see what that does. It just says, "God is true, though all men are liars. Though the whole world mocks, though the whole world scorns, I glory in the good things that God has done. I I glory in the good things that He has done in me and through me, <clears throat> no matter what the watching world thinks of it." How long will my honor become a reproach? David asks, right? And then what does he ask? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? He's, he turns to the world and he goes, "This no, you guys are crazy. You guys are the ones that are being absurd. The sons of men hold n- no place for David compared to what? Compared to God. That contrast between the sons of men, no matter how strong those men are, and these are strong men, men that are able to cause David distress have some strength in them, right? But no matter how strong they are, whether they be princes or whatever, how do they compare to God? Paul asks in Romans, what shall, then shall we say to these things? 
when facing distress, you know, what are you going to say? Well, here's something you can say. If God is for us, who's against us? Who's against David? List them. You can list them and list them. You can write it all out. And in the end, there's nobody on the list. It's like saying, well, you know, this piece of dust and that piece of dust and the other piece of dust. There's lots of dust that's against me. (laughs) There's, There's nobody against you and God is for you. Because they are all nobodies. They love worthless things. And so their judgment about what is good or bad in us is entirely deceptive. It's entirely based on believing the lies of Satan rather than believing the promises of God. It's when Eve believed Satan when he said, you will not surely die. And it led her into worthless things that led to destruction, right? So don't believe the lies of Satan, no matter who they come from, no matter who they come through. Instead, remember, how long, O sons of men, will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? Because we are God's people. In this psalm, that applies to David. He's talking about being God's holy one. Verse 3, the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. Who's he talking about? He's talking about himself. He's been set apart. Set apart for what? Set apart for kingship. He's not king because of human will. That's the mistake that we, that we make all the time all over the place. We think that what we have that's good is because of human will, whether our will or the will of other people, right? Think about David. Think about the number of times that, the, that his kingdom was lost to him. How many years did he, did he wait? with Saul still being king, where it looked like there was no chance, no hope of him ever being king. But he had been anointed already. He had been set apart for the work of being king. How long was he going to have to wait? Well, he didn't know how long he was going to have to wait, did he? But he kept believing that he had been set apart. How long are you going to have to wait Well, you don't know how long you're going to have to wait. But do you believe that God's promise is true? Or what about after he became king and he is chased out of Jerusalem by his own son? And all of the nation is turned against him. Is he king by human will? No, he's king because God said he was going to be king. Does that mean that the distress can't touch him? No. 
So it applies to David being appointed as king. It also applies to us being chosen by God, set apart as believers, set apart as his people. And it applies to your particular calling. Whether as a father or mother, teacher, employee, all of the things that you've been given to do in life, your work has been set before you by God. That's why it's called a calling. You're not, you don't have a calling because some man sometime decided that he was going to call you, right? So we can be confident and we must be confident in doing the work that we're called to. And that includes, yes, all of the obedience that we've been talking about, <clears throat> In bearing and raising children, you are living by faith. You are fulfilling by faith the calling that you've been given. And then, what? The attacks come. And you begin to lose confidence. Am I doing what's right? Is what I'm doing worthwhile? I didn't expect that it would be this hard. Who was it? Kierkegaard that said the Christian life has been found difficult and therefore left untried. Yeah, there is distress. I remember talking to a chaplain who was being obedient to God in the face of opposition and in the face of commands from men who are over him. And his wife was afraid he was going to lose his job. What are you going to do? They're going to fire you. You can't do that. They're going to fire you. And you know what he responded with? He said, they can't fire me. They're not the one who gave me this work to do. God did. They can't fire me. Now, could they fire him? Was he right or was he wrong? He was right. Because he followed it up by saying, they're not the one who gave me this work to do. God did. If God takes away this work, He'll give me other work to do. Which is not the same thing as saying, uh, if God takes away the income from this job, then he'll, he'll fulfill, then, then he'll give me a job with more income. That's not what he's saying, right? He's saying, this work that God has given me to do, I do it because God gave me this work to do. Not because they pay me. Not because they tell me I'm allowed to. God is the only one who can take away 
the work and replace it with other work. But our fears, our faithlessness, we're so quick to think, no, I have this only because of the will of man. Only if I keep satisfying man can I keep doing this job. How many examples do we see? How many places do we see this? We see it with jobs. We see it with marriages. How many times, how many, many marriages where the man or the woman uses threats to get what they want, withholding intimacy, threats of divorce, unless their spouse puts God's will second. Such a sad, sad, strong, Temptation. You think of what's most precious to you, what gives you the most comfort in life. And what David says is, tremble and do not sin. But what does he say tremble about? Tremble about losing your job? Tremble about your husband or your wife? No. Tremble before God. This is David's response to the wicked. It's David's call to us. It's David's call to himself. Meditate on your bed and be still. Church that we went to last week had a handout that they were asking everybody to take. The men were going to discuss it at their men's meeting this week. And it was on slowing. And uh, I heard that and I thought to myself... Oh, no. This is not going to be good. And so I went and I picked it up, and sure enough, it was, it was not good. And I want you to understand that what the world offers as slowing at the start of a year, you know, hey, everybody's so busy, and, and the, the threats of busyness to you, all right, the world's response is, is ridiculous. David says, meditate on your bed and be still and tremble before God and do not sin. And the world says, empty your mind of thoughts and and clear it. And, And what? As though empty is good. This is, this is Buddhism, right? If you can get everything out of your mind, get everything out of your brain, 
But what is the Christian called to do? Fill. Fill yourself with thoughts of God. Think of the song we sang. In his law, he meditates day and night. That's, the, that's completely the opposite of the world me, what the world means by slowing. You guys see the difference? The world never says, slow down and think about God's law. No, the world says slow down and smell the coffee or the flowers or whatever, right? You don't want coffee and slowing down. Is that really what it says? Did I just make that up? You can slow down and smell the roses. That's right, not the coffee. The world is ridiculous. Empty your mind. The the reason that Buddhism has to work and work and work and work at emptying and trying to get everything out and trying to get everything out is because the world constantly rushes in. All of your distress, it's real. Take it to God. Don't try to bury it in the ground somewhere. Don't try to bury it in your brain or forget it somehow. Fill yourself with thoughts of God and his word, his law. And you will be at peace. And you say, no, I'm afraid I'll tremble. I say, yeah, you you will tremble too. And that'll be good. Because then you won't sin. Fill your mind with thoughts of God and your thoughts will be reordered. Your life will be reordered. And yeah, what what you find yourself distracted by and what you give yourself to and what your busyness is, that will all change if you fill yourself with God. You'll fear him, and that will lead you to righteousness. It will lead to total priority changes. Slowing down on its own is dumb. It's pointless. I can talk to you about the dangers and the badness of busyness until I'm blue in the face, but what are you going to replace it with? Not emptiness. Not um. Replace it with the law of God. And then you'll be able with David to see that your joy is greater than all of the celebrations of the wicked. What does he say? You've put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. Well, you guys understand what the grain and the new wine stand for, right? When the grain and the new wine abound, it means that you got to the end of the year, and with us it's December, with them it would have been August or October, and and the harvest was good, plentiful, it was a bountiful year. Tons of grain, tons of grapes. There's new wine, there's abundance. You get to the end of the year, you got a bonus. 
You go into the you go into New Year's Eve and you're ready to celebrate because you had all this extra money that you could blow on booze. Okay, no, none of you guys do that. Good. Good, that's wonderful. But listen, you look at the celebrations of the wicked. You look at what how how amazingly pleasurable it all looks, and you're tempted by it. Right? You think I want to be able to celebrate like that. And David says, what? That he has greater joy than when their celebration is at its utmost. Why? Well, because their desires that they're filling are earthly emptiness. Their celebrations are dark. Their celebrations are an attempt to forget that they're at enmity with God. Their celebrations leave them drunk, vomiting with their head in the urinal. When you look at the celebrations and you you examine them, it's awful. I've been there. As an RA, dragging people out of the bathrooms to their rooms, literally dragging out of the toilets. This is, this is what their celebration is. Oh, that looks really delightful. No. No, their celebrations are worthless. They're dark. They're empty. Calvin talks about this. He says, we see how earthly men after they have despised the grace of God and plunged themselves over head and ears in transitory pleasures. Transitory means what? Fading, going away. Are so far from being satisfied with them, they're so empty that what? that the very abundance of them inflames their desires the more. And so the next week, you're dragging them out of the bathroom again. What? It doesn't make any sense. Why would you do it again? You were miserable all week because of what you did last weekend. Why are you repeating yourself? Because they've rejected God. And so their lusts drive them further. Later on he says, he says, in the midst of their fullness, the wicked man, in the midst of his fullness, in the middle of the celebration of harvest, with plenty of grain and new wine is abounding, A secret uneasiness renders their minds uncomfortable. It's secret. They hide it, but it's there. Whereas what? Whereas David, he says, many are saying, who will show us any good? And David says, show us yourself, God. Show us the light of your countenance. Show us who you are. 
And then what? You've put gladness in my heart more than the, the height of their celebration. You have true gladness when you have God. And yet, what? Yet you see the, when, the, when the celebration is at its height, when there's plenty, when there was a big bonus, when the celebration can go on and on because the money is there to make the celebration keep going, to keep trying to drown the pain, then what do you see? You see the truth of Jesus' statement. Truly, I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Because the celebration, it never stops. The masking of the pain, the dulling of it, the celebrating... It never comes to an end. The rich man can afford to dull his pain, to dull his need, his knowledge, his mind of his need. And so do you trust God to give you good things and to do what is good for you? Do you believe, like David, that having God You have true gladness. Remember I said that we were going to come back to this? This idea that God is out to get you, that actually he only gives you good things so that he can yank the carpet out from underneath you? No. When he shows you himself, you have gladness that's true. And you say, yeah, but what about all the suffering that we face? What about all the suffering that David faced? After all, he was in distress. And I say, did God fulfill his promises to David or didn't he? Was David dumb to put his faith in God? No. David was not dumb to put his faith in God. He was not the fool. Saul was the fool. David put his faith in God. And God fulfilled his promise. He put a king on his throne forever. Just like he said he would. He called you out of darkness and provided a way of salvation. You're no fool if you believe in him, if you trust his promises. You can trust him. Don't believe Satan's lies. You must trust him. Let's pray.